0: The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles and open up to 1 Peter uh, chapter 5. We're going to continue our study through the great epistle of 1 Peter, and we're quickly coming to the conclusion of 1 Peter. And uh, personally, for me, it's going to be a a hard time saying goodbye to Peter. Uh, Just as soon as we start getting settled into the book, it's time to move on. And after we uh, finish the section today, uh, we'll probably be looking at three more messages in uh, in First Peter before we wrap up this powerful and convicting epistle. Uh, but while Peter still has our attention, and before he brings this letter to a fitting conclusion, uh, Peter rattles off a series of parting commands, one right after the other, to prepare us for the battles that we all have to face. Uh, because if we desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. We're all going to come under enemy fire. And uh, Peter understands that. Uh, Peter understands that he's uh, sending us out like uh, sheep in the midst of wolves. Uh, but before he sends the, uh, the Christian soldiers back out into the fray, he issues these final commands, final commands from the general, who's kind of going through his checklist before the battle. He knows what kind of dangers are ahead. He wants us to be prepared. So how does Peter prepare us? Uh, verse 8 of uh, Chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober. Be on the alert. This, this is a reminder to be careful. This is a, a way we could summarize it. Be careful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. As, as Peter reminded us earlier in chapter 2 and verse 11, there's a, a war that's being waged for your soul. And the enemy is alive and active. Uh, The the words that are used here in this verse in verse 8, prowling, roaring, seeking to devour, they're all present and active words. Satan is not bound up in hell somewhere. He's roaming about the earth. So whatever faith teacher is out there who's binding Satan, somebody needs to let him know he keeps getting loose. You know, I I bind you, Satan uh, hasn't been enough. Actually, uh, uh, scripture lets us know that Satan will one day be bound, according to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 2, but that's a future time that hasn't yet arrived, and there's nobody down here with the power to bind Satan. He's present, he's active, and we need to be careful. Verse 8, be sober and be on the alert. Verse 9, we're exhorted to be faithful. You know, don't just be careful, but be faithful. Uh, Verse 9, but resist him firm in your faith. Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. We're to resist him. We're to stand firm. And there's many examples of uh, brothers and sisters across the world who should be an encouragement to us. And that's, that's one of the reasons that I, uh, I really enjoy reading uh, old biographies and stories of you know, faithful saints of years gone by. It's a, it's a reminder that the Lord sustained them and he can do the same for me. You know, I was talking with one of our members last week who was saying that the stories of the martyrs could be discouraging uh, because I don't know if I have that kind of faith and courage that they did. And I confess that I don't know if I have it either. <laughs> you know, I don't walk around with some kind of a Herculean faith, but I'm confident that if that time came, God would grant me what I would need in that moment to stand. God would grant me the ability to stand firm. And like uh, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 14 says that the spirit of glory and of God would rest on me. And I have that kind of confidence that if I was called to take that kind of stand, you know, to be burnt at the stake, to have my tongue ripped out, that in that moment that God would give me the strength to endure that kind of of torture. And uh, what Peter reminds us of is that the experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. That's a reminder of the grace of God. You need to be faithful. That's a a call to be faithful. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith. Be faithful. Another command that he gives is to be hopeful down in verses 10 through 11. And it's really not a command. It's more of a reminder in verses 10 through 11. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever, amen. You know, this is not in the form of a command, but it's a powerful promise that the God who called you is doing the work in you. He himself will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And that that gives us hope, doesn't it? It Gives us hope. It's it's a reminder that our hope is not built on our feeble abilities, but on the God who called us. We're, We're commanded to stand firm, but God is the one who accomplishes the work in us. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 says, For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus is perfecting that work. God is perfecting that work. And to him belongs the glory and the dominion forever. Amen? Be careful, be faithful, be hopeful. And finally, verse 12, be immovable. Be immovable. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him. I have written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. We're we're not to be moved from our position in the true grace of God. We're we're to stand firm in it. And what does that mean? What does it mean to stand firm in the grace of God? If you were to look back to chapter one of 1 Peter in verse 10, uh, the grace of God was used as a synonym for salvation. Back in chapter one in verse 10, uh, Peter says, as to this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. So so Peter, for Peter, the grace that would come to you is another word, another way to speak about the salvation that's prophesied. Grace and salvation here are used synonymously. It's talking about the same thing. The grace that will come, salvation that's prophesied. So what Peter is saying is that we believers are to stand firm immovable, as it relates to our salvation in Jesus Christ. We're to be uncompromising in our commitment. We're to be unflinching in our faith. We're to be unbending in our belief and unrelenting in our resolve. We don't cave in to the pressures around us. We stand firm. And that's how Peter signs this letter off, these kind of staccato commands. He wants these final commands to be ringing in the ears of the believers as they're being sent out. Be careful, be faithful, be hopeful, be immovable. This is Peter's preparation for the battle ahead. And he understands that there's no way that we'll be able to avoid the fight, but we don't have to fall. You don't have to fail. If we're careful, faithful, hopeful, we can stand firm and immovable. But before all of that, there's this one characteristic that precedes all the rest. And if you miss this train, you'll miss the the whole ride. You'll miss the trip. The, The rest of these commands are impossible to carry out unless you get the first command. And that's what we find in verses 5 to 7. And what is this quality that precedes all the rest? You need to be humble. (laughs) You need to be humble. And that's what Peter addresses in verses 5 down to to 7 of chapter 5. And uh, you can follow with me as I read 1 Peter chapter 5, starting at verse 5. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you as we always do. Father, pleading for your help, asking for you to help us as we look at your word that you would open these things up now, Father, that you would help us to understand, that you'd help us to grasp the things that we read in your word and apply them to our lives. Now, Father, we, we want our lives to be changed. Now, we want to look like Jesus Christ. We, we want to be those people who are faithful and immovable. That's what we want to be. Now, but Father, we can only be that as, as you help us. Now, so Father, I pray that you'd um, help us even, even now, Lord. Uh, help us to apply these things to our lives, and I pray that you'd use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The word for humility shows up three times in these three verses. Clothe yourselves with humility, verse 5. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble, verse 5. Therefore, humble yourselves, verse 6. And I would also argue that the subjection to elders in verse 5 is an expression of humility because it's placing yourself under the rank of another. You're, you're falling in line under the authority of another, and that takes humility. And all three of those words for humility come from the same family of words, uh, tapenas. It's the, uh, 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 tapenao would be the, the verb. Tapenas would be the, the noun. It was a word that was used originally for objects that were laid low, Objects that were laid low or at, at ground level. And that's the idea behind the word humility. It literally meant to be low. It was even used for the, the leveling of a, of a hill, bringing what's high down to ground level, cutting it down to size. And this is a, a word that began to be used metaphorically to speak of a person who was below somebody else in society, whether that was lower economically or, or socially Uh, in their influence, in their position. They were powerless, in many cases, unimportant. And it was a common word that was used to describe a slave, somebody who was humble, somebody who was low, somebody who was insignificant. He's beneath everybody else, which makes it even more striking uh, when we think that that this word was used to describe Jesus Christ. (laughs) In Philippians chapter 2, and verse 8, it says that Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, he made himself low. He brought himself low because there is nobody with more power, a higher position, or more importance than Jesus Christ. Uh, But Jesus Christ made himself low for our sakes, becoming obedient even to the point of death, the death on on the cross. But my point here is to say that, that to be humble is to bring yourself low, to make yourself small in relationship to others. And humility or lowliness of mind is the theme of this section and really the key to all the other qualities that we find in the rest of this passage. As as one author wrote, contrary to popular opinion, God doesn't help those who help themselves, but God helps those who humble themselves. (laughs) God helps those who humble themselves. And without humility, you can't even begin to work on the rest of this list. I mean, why why do you even need the rest of the list if you think you can do it all yourself? If you're not humble. Humble. John Stott wrote it, at every stage of our Christian development and every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. J.C. Rowell, in his book, Thoughts for Young Men, and I would recommend it to you, Thoughts for Young Men, J.C. Rowell, he says, pride is the oldest sin of the world. Satan and his angels fell by pride. They were not satisfied with their first station and status. Thus pride stocked hell with its first inhabitants. Pride threw Adam out of paradise. He was not content with the place God assigned him. He tried to raise himself and fell. Thus sin, sorrow, and death entered by pride. And pride sits in all hearts, all hearts by nature. We are born proud. Pride makes us rest content with ourselves and think we're good enough as we are. And out of all the people who struggle with humility the most, the group that Peter singles out is you younger men. Back in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says in verse 5, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And again, J.C. Ryle writes in his book, Thoughts for Young Men, let us ask any faithful minister of the gospel who are the most backward about doctrines of salvation, the most irregular about Sunday services, the most difficult to draw to weekly Bible studies and prayer meetings, the most inattentive uh, to what is ever being preached, depend upon it, his answer will always be the young men. Let us ask the parents in any country throughout this land who in their families give them the most pain and trouble, who needs the most watchfulness, the most, the most often provoke and disappoint them, Who are the first to be led away from what is right, the last to remember cautions and good advice? Who are the most difficult to keep in order and limits? Who most frequently break out in open sin and disgrace the name they bear, depend upon it? The answer will generally be the young men. Let us ask the judges, the police officers, and note what they will reply. Who makes up the street gangs? Who are the most often arrested for drunkenness, disturbing the peace, fighting, stealing, assaults, and the like? Who fills the jails and the penitentiaries and detention homes? Who is the class which requires the most incessant watching and looking after? Depend upon it. They will at once point to the same group. They will say, the young men. And out of all the people who would struggle with humility and subordination, the group that Peter seems to single out here is, you younger men. (laughs) And it's not because younger men were the only ones who were to subject themselves to the elders. that's not the, the reason. It's because it was the most difficult for them to subject themselves to the elders. First Peter five and verse two says that the elders are to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. You know that's over the, the entire congregation. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, it says, "Obey your leaders and submit to them. That's for the entire congregation. But when Peter wants to talk about a specific group to say, hey, I'm talking about you too. (laughs) you you're you're included on this list. He says, you, younger men, I'm talking about you. You're the ones who are to subject yourselves. Paul singles them out. And I do believe that the masculine pronoun uh, that's used here, the masculine plural, Uh, for uh, uh, the younger men, uh, the masculine plural uh, uh, term that's used here to speak about the younger men isn't just speaking about younger people in general. It's specifically talking about the young men, the young men here. The way that Peter uses the term elders is about a definite group, a designated group of, of men. And when he speaks about these younger men, he's also speaking about a designated group of younger men. And younger men in particular have a harder time following the example and authority set before them. They have the pride like, like Rehoboam. If you remember the story of Rehoboam, son of uh, Solomon, he had the opportunity to rule over a united kingdom like his father, but he listened to the counsel of his friends that he grew up with, his buddies, his, his homies from, from back in the day. Instead of listening to the elders that served his father, he wants to listen to his, uh, his friends. And he lost the kingdom. Listens to his friends and loses the kingdom. And you may not have put this together, uh, but the, uh, the book of Proverbs was written to Solomon's sons, and guess who would have been among them? Rehoboam. <laughs> Rehoboam. But he listens to the counsel of his friends instead of listening to the voice of his father, and the elders who served along with him. And we have a array of bones today, don't we? <laughs> Instead of listening to the elders, listening to advice of men who are, who've been there and done that, you know, they, they'd rather listen to themselves and listen to their buddies around them. What's the command here? It's to be subject. Humble yourself before authority. Humble yourselves before the elders. The word for subject is the, the Greek word hupotasso. It's a word that uh, means to, to place under to to place in order, to place in rank. It's essential that you fall in line, fall in rank. And it's a word that was frequently used in secular Greek for uh, political and military subjection. And it's uh, the idea that you don't, don't break rank. You know, stay in line. You know, stay in the appropriate place. And the elders are given an authority within the church that you are to submit to. Elders are given that kind of authority, a delegated authority, so it's a, a limited authority. You know, elders don't have, you know, uh, universal authority, supreme authority. They have a limited authority. And, and where does that authority set? It's the boundaries are set by Scripture. That's why Titus chapter 2 and verse 15 says, These things speak. Speaking about the words of Scripture, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. You know, when an elder speaks the word of God, that's when he's speaking with authority. These things speak and exhort with all authority, not your words. It's the, the words of Scripture, and when elders are speaking in the position of, of Scripture, from Scripture, you're to obey them, submit to them. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2 uh, t- tells, the, uh, uh, tells uh, Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to, to preach the Word. You know, it's not your Word, it's, it's the Word of God. So the, the limit of an elder's authority is found in the Word of God. It's a limited authority. Now, we also find that the elders are to be an example of what they're preaching as well, right? You know, Peter places uh, the elders under an exhortation. You know, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, Peter is directing his exhortation to the elders. You're under this authority. And what Peter does is he places himself underneath that same authority because I'm a fellow elder. I'm with you. You know, so what I'm telling you to do is what I'm also to do. I'm to be an example. In uh, 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, Timothy was commanded to show yourself an example of those who believe. Titus 2, verse 7, in all things, show yourself to be an example. In the immediate context here, the, the elders are to be an example. Even being willing to, to suffer uh, for what they believe to be right. They're witnesses. Uh, no, Peter was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And he's exhorting these elders to, uh, to, to make sure that, that you're of the, the same kind of, of person. That you're following this kind of example. That you're willing to suffer for what you know to be that's right. And uh, how foolish is it if you have an elder that's limited by the authority of Scripture who's submitting himself to the authority of Scripture and who's also willing to suffer to prove himself an example of Scripture and uh, you're willing to go your own way instead. How how foolish is that instead of subjecting yourself to that kind of example? But we have many Rehoboam's, don't we? (laughs) We have many people who believe they have a little corner on the truth. You know, they've discovered something on their own. They've uh, reasoned themselves out of... uh, you know, the position of the church because they've done a Google search and all of a sudden they're an authority. You know, how many books have you read? You know, I haven't read any books, but, uh, you know, a couple, couple, uh, couple clicks on Google get me all that I need. And we've lost one too many young men like that, haven't we? One too many young men. I mean, one's too many. But we've lost one too many men who believe that, that no church has it right. Men who believe that that nobody has the right Bible, that there's more books that we're still in search of. Men who believe that we don't follow the law enough, you know, whether that's the law of men or the law of government, we're not following the law enough. Or men who believe we're not relaxed enough. (laughs) I mean, both ways. And where does that come from? The young men, (laughs) the young men within the church. We've seen it here. They're led astray, they lead others astray. But what does Peter say? Subject yourself to the elders. That's what Peter says. That's, that's the guard. That's the protection against this. In every case, it comes back to a lack of humility. There's no way that you'll be able to stand if you have a proud heart. And we've had too many of young men come through our church who've done the same thing. Romans 12.3 says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought 1 Corinthians 8-2, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. It's been said that the, the difference between uh, David's sons, Solomon and Absalom, was that Solomon saw himself as a little child. Solomon saw himself as somebody who needed help. In First Corinthians, uh, First Kings, uh, Chapter Three, it says that I, I don't know how to go out or to come in. I, I need help. I need wisdom, and he asked God for wisdom, and God gave him the kingdom. Ask God for wisdom, and God gave him all the riches in addition to that. While Absalom thought himself as equal to anything and ready for the throne prematurely, Second Samuel fifteen and verse four. Moreover, Absalom would say, "Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. I'm, I'm ready to be king." I just can't wait to be king. Then every man who has any suit or cause could come to me and I would give him justice. Just put, put me on the throne. I'm ready for it now. While Solomon's like, I, I, I'm just like a child. I don't, I don't know where to go. I, I don't know my way in and out. Like, Lord, I need help. Humble. Difference between Solomon and Absalom. One was humble. One was proud. One thought he was ready for the throne and the other knew that he wasn't. And Solomon became king while Absalom died in battle with his hair sticking in the trees. (laughs) There's no way you'll be able to stand with a proud heart. Don't be too confident in your own judgment. Stop being so sure that you're right. And don't trust your opinion when you find it contrary to the wisdom of the elders and those around you. (laughs) How many times have we lost people who just, just, I got it figured out on my own. I don't need any help. Don't wanna sit down, don't wanna to talk to anybody. No, I, I got this all wired. Humble yourself. That's where you're gonna find protection. Humble yourself. Humble yourself before authority. That's point number one. Point number two, humble yourself before others. Humble yourself before others. Look at verse five again. It says, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders and all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And here, here Peter moves from Uh, The particular example of young men to the general congregation as a whole. All of you clothe yourselves with humility. All of you. I was listening to a message by uh, MacArthur. He said he was in Louisiana and he was walking down a street and somebody pulled him into a a shop. They were like, hey, you know, you got to come into our shop. You know, come into my shop. You know, I think you'll find something that you might want to buy. And he comes in and he says that he saw a bunch of, uh, you know, clothes kind of folded over and he said, it's a bunch of ladies' clothes, and he's like, well, I don't, I don't, I'm not buying any clothes here for myself, and uh, I, I've made a rule not to buy anything for my wife, <laughs> you know, because I, I never know what she wants, especially like I'm, I'm out here. I don't, I don't know what she would want. You know, I don't know. You know, I'm not even sure what was there. said, don't worry about that. Uh, everything in here fits everybody. <laughs> and he says, I don't, I don't think that would be complimentary to my wife to bring something home that could fit anybody, you know? But when it comes to uh, humility, he says that's a one-size-fits-all kind of outfit. Yeah. Humility is something that everybody can put on. And here Peter moves from the example of young men to the general congregation and he says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility. How, how did you come dressed for church today? Are you clothed in humility, lowliness of mind toward one another? And Peter chooses a very graphic picture to speak about our humility before one another. He uses a, a word that only shows up once in the entire Bible. It's a, the, the, the word egg com bohemi. And it's from a word that means to gird oneself up, to tie something on yourself into a knot or into a bow. It's a very specific word. D. Edmund Hebert in his commentary says, the picture is that of a slave tying on the apron to serve. The wearing of that apron distinguished that slave from the freedman it's it's you you're tying yourself up with an apron Reserve. i'm i'm clothing myself in humility and a slave would put on an apron over his clothes to keep them clean in order to keep his clothes clean he would put on this apron tied into a knot so it became the word for putting on humility hebrew goes on to say the garment of humility must be put on not as a matter of external show in other words this is not a fashion statement this isn't for fashion But it's a characteristic attitude, a willingness to serve. How is humility demonstrated? It's by the the willingness to serve. I'm I'm willing to do anything. Like we mentioned before, this word for humility was used metaphorically for for somebody who was low in society, a slave. It was used for the powerless, for the, the unimportant. Common word that was used for slaves, the humble. And that's the idea that's reinforced by Peter's use of this word, Tying on this garment. Tying on this garment of humility it was it would have reminded them of of slave service, clothing themselves in humility. And and who else did Peter see tie themselves up, gird themselves about, ready to serve? Flip back to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Peter saw his Lord gird himself up and clothe himself in humility. John chapter 13, look at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garment, garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. When you entered into a, a house and before you ate a meal, it was customary to have your feet washed. This is a, a culture where they wore open shoes and the roads were dusty, uh, so you would track the dust in with you when you went into the house. And before a meal, it was particularly important that you have your feet washed because you didn't come to sit at a table and put your feet underneath the table. That's, that's not how they ate. They didn't eat at a table and stick their feet underneath. You know, when, when you ate, you would recline next to the person who was next to you, so it would be like head to foot going around the hill. So it's not only customary, it's sanitary, you know, to have your feet washed. You know, when we see those uh, paintings of the, the Last Supper, you know, all the disciples at the long table, and you know, John kind of awkwardly trying to lean on Jesus' breast, like that's, that's not how it would have looked everybody would have been laying around the meal and it would have been very easy for John just to kind of kick back and, and lay down on Jesus, like, hey, Jesus, and, and talk to him. That, that's how it would have been. That's the scene that you're to imagine. So the disciples would have been laying across the floor, reclining as they ate. Uh, John thirteen twelve talks about how uh, they reclined. And in this culture, they, like I said, kind of hit the foot. And uh, Passover was the most important meal of the year. <laughs> So here they are sitting at the most important meal of the year, all around the table or all around the, the meal, and uh, nobody's feet are washed. The, the, the most important meal, and everybody's sitting next to unsanitary feet. So Jesus gets up in the middle of this dinner and he girds himself. The, it was customary for a slave to be assigned this duty, the lowest person in the house was assigned this duty. And all the disciples aren't going to put themselves in the position of the lowest of the group because they're all arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Just know that was the top discussion on this very night. They're all arguing about who's greatest among us. So nobody's about to say, well, I'm the greatest, but I'll also wash your feet too. Like nobody's about to do that. And after watching these disciples recline around the meal, Jesus gets up and assumes the position of the lowest person in the house. (laughs) Literally clothing himself with humility, putting on the slave of an, uh, the, the, the apron of a slave, and he becomes the example for all of us doesn 't he? John thirteen verse fifteen he says, For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you, and that doesn 't mean that I need to see your feet before we have a meal next time okay and that 's not what that means you know to do as I did to you he 's not talking about literally washing feet that 's not what he 's talking about. actually it was a part of a church where uh, they wash feet, you know. So it's like you have people that already took a bath, sacks on, shoes on, that came to church and took off their sacks and shoes so they could have you wash your feet that already washed. It's like, what am I doing here? You know, it's, it's, it's uh, it, 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 and especially in our culture, it's like there's, there's no need to, to wash feet. You know, it might be a need to come over and fix somebody's toilet or something like that. That would be an example of lowly service, right? We don't need our feet washed. Humility expresses itself and a willingness to serve others even beyond your own self-interest. I'm I'm willing to lower myself. Is that what you do when you come into a room full of people? Do do you come into a room full of people and automatically assume the last position, the lowest position in the room? Like, Like, that's what we're talking about. Do you think about how you can serve others, or do you think about how others can serve you? Is there a job that you think is beneath you? You know, I'll send somebody else to do that. I'm not saying that you need to do every job, but do you think of that job that you send somebody else to do is beneath you? Or do you say, like, like no, I, I could take that. Uh, uh, the Shepherds Conference we go out to in California every year, uh, one of the things that they uh, started including as uh, part of their, their practice is to have a, a shoe-shining station. And uh, one of the judges from the uh, Supreme Court in California takes off a week every year, so he can come and shine shoes of those who attend the conference. It's not beneath him. <laughs> you know, he's he's willing to pick up the lowest position, even though he comes from a, a high status. You need to clothe yourself with humility. That's that's what scripture teaches us to do. Do nothing, Philippians 2 verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's that's the kind of attitude that that we're to have, and it's the kind of attitude that Jesus had, right? Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And do you know who took a death on the cross? Do you know what kind of people were killed on a cross? One of the people, one of the types of people who were killed on a cross were slaves. It was the death of a slave. Jesus assumed the position of a slave even when he was hanging on the cross. Humility characterized the Son of God. No wonder, Peter says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. Why don't you flip back to uh, Proverbs chapter 3. When Peter says, uh, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble, he's actually quoting from Proverbs chapter 3. And in uh, Proverbs chapter 3, we have uh, Solomon extolling the the great value of, of wisdom Chapter 3, verse, verse 1. Listen to what, uh, what he says here. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life, and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you'll find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So he's extolling the, the greatness of, of wisdom. Trust in the Lord. Don't forget my teaching. Like, like, don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. I'm, I'm giving you advice for life. Then later on in the same chapter, he speaks about the, the way that we're to treat one another. You know, wisdom does what's right for his neighbor. Look at verse 27. Verse 27. He says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives securely beside you. Do not contend with the man without cause if he has done you no harm. So, so all these ways that you're to treat your neighbor, this is the, the expression of wisdom. And then down in verse 34, look what he says. Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted which in uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it would say the Lord is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what, what is Solomon talking about here? In, in the immediate context, he's speaking about how we treat one another, right? And the idea is that it's it's a proud and wicked man who scoffs at those he believes are beneath him. That's the idea of scoffing. You know, you're beneath me. I'll, I'm insulting you. I'm putting you down. Lifted up in pride and putting you down. And the person characterized in Proverbs as a scoffer. But in this context, he's not scoffing directly against God. He's he's scoffing against against other people. He's looking down on other people. You're beneath me. The word for scoff means to to mock, to scorn, to deride, to, to insult. I'm putting you down. You're the one seeing them as a slave. Insignificant, powerless. You mock them for it. But God sees it. Yeah, and as, uh, as kids, we, we used to sing the song growing up in church, you know, be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful little mouth what you say. You know, there's a father up and above looking down in tender love. Be careful little mouth what you say. When, when you scoff against other people, insult people, God God hears it all. God God sees it all. And don't think that God doesn't notice when you lift yourself up as being above somebody else. And God answers that mocking with a mocking of his own. Actually, in 1 Peter, it says, uh, again, God is opposed to the proud. The scoffers, those who, who mock, you know, highly against other people. He says, God is opposed to you. you know, the, the, the word that's uh, translated opposed in 1 Peter is, a, is a, a word that means to array in battle against. tasso. It's a military word, to prepare for battle. God God assembles himself to battle against you when you raise yourself up in pride against other people. Does it ever seem like nothing's working out in your life? <laughs> you ever uh, uh, find that it seems like you can't get things together? Does it ever seem like somebody's working against you? <laughs> the Bible says God's a prose to the proud. You need to examine your life. Have, have I been putting other people down? Have I been elevating myself above other people? Do I, do I see myself as somebody significant? And others is unimportant. Bob lets us know we need to clothe ourselves in humility, embrace humility. Those who are clothed in humility are the ones that the Lord lifts up. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You want grace? Humble yourself. That's that's the point. You want grace? Humble yourself before one another and let the spirit of glory and of grace rest upon you. So we are to to humble ourselves before the elders, we're to humble ourselves before one another, and we're also to humble ourselves before God. Look back at uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 again. 1 Peter chapter 5, and we'll wrap this up. Chapter 5 and verse 6, Peter says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That word, uh, therefore, therefore, humble yourselves, it shows that there's a connection uh, between verses six and seven and what's preceded. The, the word therefore shows that there's a, a connection between the humility that he's discussed above and what he's talking about now. This, this humility that we're to have now. It's, it's connected. It's all connected. And when Peter says that God gives grace to the humble, he's speaking about those who, uh, who are afflicted, those who are afflicted by the by the proud, those who are finding themselves in this low position. They've been brought low. They, they're humbled uh, by their condition. And it says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves. So I've been humbled, and now what am I supposed to do, Peter? You know, Peter, I've, I've been humbled by those who are afflicting me. Uh, Peter, do you have any instructions for me? Therefore, humble yourselves. <laughs> it's like, I, but I'm already being humbled. You know, but that's what I want want you to do. I want you to be humbled. Peter says that, that God gives grace to the humble. You're low, you, you've been afflicted, and Peter says you need to embrace that. Embrace that humility. Peter says humble yourself. It seems like a strange command. You know, I'm already being humbled, but now the command is to humble myself even further. Peter says accept it. It's a, a passive command that's used here. Be humbled, you could translate it. You know, if you find yourself humbled, you need to be humbled, accept your humiliation, stay low, don't fight the process. And what Peter does is he reminds us that our affliction happens here under the hand of God. If you find yourself in a position, don't think that God is somehow absent from that. God God is at work. That phrase, the the mighty hand of God, uh, it was actually a a word, a a phrase that was used um, with frequency in the Old Testament to speak about the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt. The mighty hand of God, often it was connected with that. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand. Deuteronomy 6, verse 21, Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from from Egypt with a mighty hand. Deuteronomy 7, verse 8, But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand. Over and over and over again, this idea of, of God's mighty hand is connected to his deliverance of his people. And Peter is saying, God has delivered his people before. Don't you think that he can deliver you? <laughs> you need to humble yourself under this process. Yes, I know that you're being afflicted. I know that it's, it's humiliating to be afflicted. But I'm, I'm telling you that you need to embrace that. Accept that. And God has a purpose in your affliction. It's part of the purpose of God to bring us humility. In James chapter 1 and verse 2, it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. (laughs) Why? Because God has a work that he's doing, right? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result. Let it work. I'm, I'm humbled, and I'm being humbled, and I'm going to allow that to work in my life. I'm going to trust God in that process, that God is doing something. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to trust that God is doing something in my life. I'm trusting that God is working something good in my life. And as we go through that process, as we embrace that, it's in due time that God brings us out. It's in due time that God exalts us. And for some of us, that may come in this lifetime, right? Uh, remember Joseph, the story of Joseph, you know, he went from the, the pit to the prison to the palace. In Genesis 37, his brothers threw him into the pit, you know, because of his, his dreams and uh, the favoritism that he was shown. After that, he was sold into slavery and uh, actually accused of coming after his master's wife and thrown into prison, right? And after that, God exalted him to the second place of command in Egypt, from the, from the pit to the prison to the palace, he was humbled, but he was also exalted at the proper time, the right time. When, when God said it's time to, to raise you up, that's the time. Genesis 50 and verse 20, uh, Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. Like this is what God was doing the whole time. This is what God was after, to preserve many people alive. So, so God had a purpose in this, and we love stories like Joseph. It's like, man, I want a story like that. You know, because you, you want to see you come out at the other end. But uh, oftentimes we, we don't have that Joseph story ending. It's like we seem like we're, we're in the pit and we go to the prison and then back to the pit again. It's like, Lord, like, where's, is there a palace around here somewhere? Like, you got, got one of those for me? We don't, we don't always see the, the end of this story in this life. 1 Peter 4.17 lets us know that it, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And for some, their life ends during that time of judgment. They don't see the palace at the other end. But but we trust that God has the proper time. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and allow him to lift you up at the proper time. God is doing a work. We don't understand all of what God does, but we know that God is is working in the midst of it all. And then the final thing that Peter says here, and this is, this is so encouraging here. This is so encouraging. Verse 7, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. That word for uh, anxiety, it, it's a, a broad word, covers a, a range of concerns. One commentator says this word uh, unites all the readers' individual concerns and cares, uh, unites the memories of the past, the pressures of the present, the fears of the future, all into one burdensome whole. You know, all the cares, the concerns, the anxieties. And and, and Peter is being brought purposefully here. He says, uh, all of your anxieties, all of them, all your anxieties. So whether you've, you know, come in here today with anxieties of the past or the present or the future, Peter says all of them. You you can bring them all and you can cast all of those anxieties upon him. Cast them on him. That word for uh, casting Uh, was literally used uh, for placing a load on a beast of burden. It was used in uh, Luke chapter 19 and verse 35, where it says they they brought it to Jesus. It was a a foal, the colt of a a donkey, brought it to Jesus. They threw their coats on the colt. They cast it on the colt. And then they put Jesus on it. And, and And that beast burdened, you know, it was burdened with Jesus and everything else that they placed on top of him. He was the beast of burden. And he carried it. And... What God is saying is that those burdens that you're carrying, you need to cast them on me. Throw them on me. I can take it. All your anxieties, all your fears, all your concerns, everything that you've been worried about, I want you to take them all and cast them on me. Throw them on me. I can carry them for you. And there's so many of us who are walking around with our own burdens on our back when the Lord is right there saying, hey, I'll I'll take that. (laughs) I I can take that for for you. We can cast them on the Lord. Just pack it on them pack it on them. So many of the burdens that we walk around with are crushing us, suffocating underneath the burdens that we carry. But this is is the part about this verse that I've missed for so long. I've read this verse for so long and missed this for so long. Because back in verse 6, the command is to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, right? That's the command. Humble yourself. That's the central theme of these verses. Humble yourself. And verse 7 is connected back to that command. The word casting is a participle, and grammarians would call it an instrumental participle, and all that means is that this explains how that command is to be followed. How am I to follow that command to humble myself? What, What does that look like to humble myself under the hand of God? What does that look like? It looks like casting your anxieties on him. That's how I obey the command to humble myself is by casting my anxieties onto him. So what, is, what does that mean? It means that if I'm trying to carry my own burdens, I'm not being humble. If I'm trying to carry my burdens by myself, I am not being humble. What are, what are we saying when we're attempting to carry our own burdens? What we're saying is I can handle it. I can do this. I, I got this, Lord. Don't worry about it. I can carry this. I'm strong enough to bear this on my own. You know, we uh, sang it in the, the, the song earlier. I must tell Jesus all my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, he kindly helps me. He ever cares and loves his own. I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. I cannot bear these burdens alone. I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. Jesus can help me. Jesus alone. What are we saying when we carry around our burdens by ourselves? We're saying, Lord, I, I've got this. I don't need your help. That's what we're saying. We're saying we don't need the Lord's help. And you can't even sustain your own life, much less your own burdens. James chapter 4, verse 13 says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business, make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like Tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. I mean, we're the congregation of vapors right now. Just the mist, we're evaporating. I mean, that's who we are. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or do that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Jesus says in John 15 and verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. But so often we act as if we're the supreme being. Don't we? R.C. Sprawl writes this. He says the grand difference between a human being and a supreme being is precisely this. Apart from God, I cannot exist. Apart from me, God does exist. God does not need me in order for him to be. But I do need God in order for me to be. <laughs> this is the difference between what we call self-existent being and dependent being. We are dependent. We are fragile. We cannot live without air, without water, without food. No human being has the power within himself. Life is lived. I love this. He says, life is lived between two hospitals. (laughs) Life is lived between two hospitals. We need a support system from birth to death to sustain life. We're like flowers that bloom and then wither and fade. This is how we differ from God. God does not wither. God does not fade. God is not fragile. And where are you supposed to carry? cast your burdens on him? (laughs) Lord, I, I can't do this. Who do I think I am trying to carry this by myself? Lord, I need you. And the attitude of humility recognizes that we are but dust And we can't take matters into our own hands. We need to trust God with our burdens. Whatever you've brought in here carrying, and and I understand it's it's difficult and your mind might be fractured and all over the place, but if you're trying to carry that on your own, uh, what you're saying is that you can carry it on your own. And we need to release those things to God. Cast our anxieties upon him. And why can we do that? Because he cares. (laughs) Because he cares. We can entrust our souls to him because he cares. Psalm 55, verse 22, it says, Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. God cares. Last verse I want you to turn to. Flip over to to Matthew chapter 6. It's a verse that we know well. Just a verse to remind us about the the compassion and the, the care that we receive from God. I love this. Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 25. It says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life, as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They worry, don't they? (laughs) No, they don't. (laughs) They don't sow, they don't reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? By by worrying about, uh, you know, your life, you're not adding anything to it. Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What what did did, uh, Jesus mean when he said the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things? He's saying that the people who have no relationship with God, like they're worried about where they're going to get all these things from because they don't have a Father who's taking care of them. But he says, that's not you. You have a heavenly father who knows everything that concerns you. And you can cast all of your burdens upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. Do you trust God? Do you trust God even with the burdens that you carry, even with the uh, afflictions of this life? Do you understand that I can roll all these things over onto God and he can carry my burdens for me? I must tell Jesus all my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone, amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this time that we've had in your word. Uh, Father, we thank you for uh, the reminder uh, that this is to us, that we need to humble ourselves. You know, within the church, we need to, to humble ourselves under uh, leadership, the, the delegated authority that you've placed within the church. Uh, before one another, we need to humble ourselves, and, and what that looks like is, uh, is service that we We're eager to serve one another. We're not uh, looking for uh, how we can be served, but we're looking for how we can serve, how we can be a benefit and blessing to one another. And, Father, we also need to humble ourselves before you, and uh, the way that that looks like is by casting our burdens upon you. Father, that we don't uh, imagine that we can carry the burdens of life on our own, uh, whatever we're we're faced with, Lord. We know that that we're not sufficient enough to carry these things, Lord, and that, that we must tell you about these things. Cast them upon you and trust you with these things. So, Father, I pray that you'd help us to, to be people who are humble uh, with whatever ails us, Lord. All the, uh, the, the various uh, things that we come in here with. All the concerns about the past, about the present, about the future. Whatever it is, Lord, we can, we can cast all these things upon you uh, because we, we trust you as our Heavenly Father to care for us. If, if you would feed the birds, how much more will you take care of us? So, Father, I thank you that we're related to you by supernatural birth, that we've been born again. We've been born into the family of God. We have a Father who loves us, who cares for us, and we can entrust our souls to a faithful creator. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.